Hi, this is Steve Hargadai. Welcome to the Future of Education in the United States. It's Tuesday, August 30th, 2011. I'm actually coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia, where it's the next day. Uh, I'm also on a, a wireless broadband connection. So if for some reason my audio gets bad or I drop off, do leave a note in the chat so that I'll know. If I do drop off, I'll come right back in. Our special guests today are Rick and Becky Dufour. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure, Steve. We're looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much. The Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, the project that I work on for Blackboard Collaborate, but uh, used to be Illuminate. Also sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project, Web20Labs.com. Coming up in November, our free two-day worldwide conference on the future of libraries. This has uh, really been a lot of fun to watch the response to this. Uh, very exciting. Library2011.com or Library20.com to sign up. It is free. Will all be held in eliminate and um, should be fun. Also, our global education conference this year, November 14th to 18th. If you've been waiting for that call for presentations, it's coming today. Um, anyway, uh, a five-day worldwide conference. This was an absolute blast last year. Again, free for everyone to join and to participate. Coming up on the future of education, a little break for me, but on September 13th, Howard Gardner comes on the show to talk about his book, Young School of Mind. Sam Sheltain, uh, two days after that, on his new book, Faces of Learning. Bob Gleiner will join us to talk about his film, Lessons from the Real World. I really enjoy these interviews with the directors of education related films. and. Um, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to uh, hearing from Bob, who has a good history in this area. On September 27th, um, we're going to be talking about the Open Courseware program with Cecilia and Oliveira. Then on September 29th, a special show on a successful implementation of iPads uh, in the classroom. Uh, this is a fascinating topic, a little bit controversial. So. Uh, I look forward to hearing from Bruce in the beginning on the success that they feel that they've had. Peter Cookson on the Children's Education Bill of Rights, and then Alan Blankstein on improving individual schools. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded. They're in the full Illuminate version at futureofeducation.com. There's also an MP3 podcast stream. That podcast stream comes from Delicious, the social bookmarking site, and uh, for a few days they've been having a problem updating that stream. So if you can't get to uh, an interview that you're looking for on this, the listing on the left-hand side that comes from the RSS feed, do uh, go to the recordings page, click on the Delicious link, and you'll be able to access them there. So this is your chance to let us know where you're participating from. I'm going to give you permissions now to uh, make a mark on the whiteboard. You do that by 
clicking on that star icon to the left of the map, and then moving your cursor over onto the map and clicking. And feel free to shout out in the chat where you are, the time, the temperature. Looks like we're a little North America centric. As I was making up the questions for today's interview, I wondered about that. I worried a little bit about focusing on the U.S. system, um, but hopefully you and the audience will call me out if something seems like it's uh, not global enough. Yes, in our Sincere concerns and best wishes for those who have had to deal with flooding because of Hurricane Irene. Okay, we're going to move forward now. So, Rick and Becky, I'm relatively new to this conversation. The interview series is only a few years old. Uh, but reading your material felt like finding an old friend. I really appreciate it. Um, Art, can you give us a little bit of the background, maybe your own personal background, and then uh, the two of you can decide who will tell what parts of the story. But give us a little bit of the history of professional learning communities. And I don't have your audio, so you might have to turn your mic on. Okay, I'll start with that, Steve. Um, I was a public school educator for 34 years, a classroom teacher, the president of our teacher union, I was a principal and I became a superintendent. And all of my experience was at the high school level. And I found uh, that traditional high school practices um, worked doing a particularly good job of ensuring the success of all students. Um, when the effective schools research came out in the late 70s, early 80s, there was uh, an embracing of the idea, or at least the slogan, that all students could learn. Um, but I wasn't finding that assumption driving the practices of schooling. And so, um, we began to look for research outside of education in terms of what do we know about effective organizations in general, what do we know about effective leadership, what do we know about the change process, and began to merge that with what we know about what we knew about good schooling practices. And that sort of created a framework for what we call uh, the professional learning community process. Uh, Bob Aker and I, Bob is uh, my closest friend, and we've been good friends now for 35 years. Um, he was a professor at Middle Tennessee State University. And the two of us wrote the first book on professional learning communities back in 1998. 
And at that time, we were trying to make the case that uh, some of those traditional assumptions and practices needed to be changed and offered sort of a different approach um, to schooling and different assumptions driving the practices of educators. And uh, since then, of course, we've written uh, many books. Uh, we're up to 14 now, I guess. And uh, Becky uh, came on and offered in uh, an elementary perspective that we had been lacking. And so when she uh, joined our team, it, it really seemed uh, to serve as a catalyst uh, for the process becoming much more um, uh, popular, I guess, for lack of a better term. There, there, there seemed to be much greater interest when she came onto our team in around the year 2002. Um, so I'm going to let her talk about her own uh, personal bio. Oh, hi, Stephen, and uh, all of you out there listening. I um, was privileged to be a teacher, uh, an assistant principal, a principal, a central office director for fine arts education in a K-12 setting, and then back to an elementary principalship. And it was at that point, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, that um, I had the, the great honor of working with a very dedicated faculty who was very willing and committed to transforming that traditional elementary school into what today is still a very high-performing professional learning community. So Steve, just like you, when I learned of the professional learning community at work process for improving schools, it felt like I had uh, been uh, reunited with an old friend. Um, the practices uh, are definitely grounded in research, but they just make a lot of common sense when you really stop and break down the PLC process into the specific components. So we're so excited today to be able to, to chat with you about this process and to answer questions that may be there. And even though we're spread around the world and maybe uh, located more centrally in the United States, we're going to contend that the process is universal. It doesn't matter where the school or district is located, um, what level of schooling, how many or few resources are available. This process could be done um, successfully anywhere as long as the people who are working within the organization are willing to make some significant change in traditional practice. So I know we hesitate to, to use business terms or measures in education, but uh, Rick, it really felt to me in many ways like some of what or much of what I was reading uh, paralleled the total clothing movement and um, those those ideas and practices, and we've talked a lot about that on the in the interview series. But how much were you influenced by that kind of material, and do you see parallels between what you're doing and um, and the good practice of total quality? 
Yes, we see a, a, a lot of uh, parallels, and um, I think um, it really doesn't matter uh, whether you're talking about public schools or um, the private sector in terms of we do know that there are some processes and uh, that help an organization continuously improve. And uh, it seems to me like we should be open to those processes uh, where, wherever they might come from. Um, Peter Singhi's work on the learning organization had a big influence on our initial work. Uh, Terry Deal's work on corporate culture had uh, a big influence on that work. Warren Bennis on leadership. Um, so uh, James McGregor Burns on leadership. But uh, if you were to look now, for example, at the Ballbridge uh, Award criteria and see uh, what they list as the criteria of effective organizations in order to become eligible for the Ballbridge Award, they're going to very much parallel uh, what we would call upon educators to do in professional learning communities. And as, as Becky said, um, there's not a single thing about it that's counterintuitive. When we work with educators, by far the most common response that we get is, this just makes sense. Um, it's been endorsed now by virtually all of the professional organizations uh, for teachers and principals. Um, there is research now that's come from around the world. The researchers from Australia, New Zealand, England, Canada, the United States, all concluding that this is our best strategy for sustained uh, school improvement. Not in substantive school improvement, not just superficial. So um, it makes sense. It's research-based. It's been widely endorsed. But it's still very difficult and challenging to do because it requires more than just superficial change or even structural changes where we change the schedule or we, we uh, change um, the grade levels or the department. It really requires cultural changes. And those are very difficult because they, they get right to the heart of the assumptions and the expectations and the beliefs and the habits that constitute the norm for people throughout the organization. Changing the culture of organizations like public schooling that have endured pretty much for a century now um, is, is a challenging task. So we don't make a light out of uh, the challenge that educators face when they attempt to transform their schools into professional learning communities. But it's eminently doable and it's totally logical and uh, again it has been endorsed uh, by people around the world. If your audience was ever interested in finding more specifics in terms of, well, I'd like to read some of that research, or I'd like to um, hear quotes from the organizations. So I'm a teacher. I, I want to hear what 
the National Education Association has said, or or uh, the American Federation of Teachers, or the National Council of Teachers of Math, if they wanted to um, read the actual quotes from those organizations, all they have to do is go to a website called allthingsplc.info. It's a no-commerce website, but on that website you uh, can find uh, all kinds of research, um, examples of schools from around the world that are doing this. Um, there's also um, uh, some blogs where people are uh, invited to ask questions and they get responses from educators around the country. So it's a very, very helpful website for somebody who is trying to make the case why should we do this? So I tried to pull the website up in the, uh, the, the web tour. I'm not sure it's showing up for anybody else, or just to show it up for me. Maureen asked the question in the chat, and Maureen, I've captured that, and I'll I'll come back to it. There are a couple of things I want to come back to, especially this cultural change issue, um, because we had Bob Compton on the other the other day talking about Finland and the process there. But before we get there, Becky, I wanted to ask you about a parallel I saw between uh, the students learning lives and the teachers learning lives that came from the material. Um, it felt as though um, in sort of a brilliant way they should be kind of mirroring each other and having some consistency. And I was reminded of the advisory program um, as a parallel to the, the regular teachers meetings. Do, do you find that those two are in parallel or consistent? Um, I think Becky uh, was a little confused by the question, so I want to make sure that I've got a brilliant answer. Yeah, I've got a great answer. I'm just not sure it's to the right uh, to your question. Um, just to, to clarify, uh, you're saying that you saw a parallel between the learning of students and learning of teachers, and that some of the programs, things like advisory programs where um, students are working with one another uh, are in some ways parallel to the collaborative team meetings. Did I get that right, Steve? Yes. You not only got it right, you did a better job expressing it than I did. All right. Now that I think that is clear on that. Okay. Now I'm clear. <laughs> Thanks, Rick and Steve. Um, no, absolutely, there is a parallel. As a matter of fact, the, the definition that we have um, written and uh, hope that is embraced worldwide about the PLC at Work process is that the key to improved learning for students is the ongoing job embedded learning for the adults who serve those students. And that learning happens best in a collaborative culture. It's a, it's a social experience where we're constantly learning with and from each other. 
So certainly teachers in their collaborative teams and across faculties vertically and horizontally are learning constantly and that same good logic applies to students in their classrooms. Um, we know today that um, to be successful in the 21st century we have to prepare our students to be collaborative learners, to learn to work in, in teams and to um, set and achieve goals and um, to uh, you know be risk takers. And all of those things are characteristics of high performing teams in professional learning communities. So we see a lot of parallel um, as you've mentioned. And um, students um, you know, with their collaborative partners are getting extra time and support through their peer relationships as well as through the, the student-teacher relationships. And the same is happening for the, the collaborative teams of teachers. So Rick, uh, what is a professional learning community and, and how is it often misunderstood? Well, I'm really glad you asked that. Um, here are some of the things that it's not. It's not a program um, that you simply add on to the existing structure and culture of your school. It's not a book study where we read the same book and talk about it and then return to our classrooms and it's business as usual. And it's not, and by any means, um, simply teachers coming together once a week uh, to commiserate with each other or form a support group and then return to their classrooms and none of their practices change. We've seen all of those misinterpretations and there are many, many schools that are calling themselves PLCs that do none of the things that PLCs do and particularly schools that feel like if we schedule time for teachers to come together on a regular basis, say once a week for a meeting, that makes us a PLC. And I want to stress as emphatically as I possibly can that we have research from around the world now emphasizing that simply bringing teachers together to collaborate will do absolutely nothing to improve student achievement in school unless they have the discipline to co-labor on the right work. So there are three big ideas that drive the PLC process and each one of those ideas has significant um, consequences and requires significant changes. So the first big idea and the biggest of the three big ideas is that in the professional learning community the people embrace the fundamental purpose of the school is to ensure that all students learn at high levels. And um, they're very literal in that. We want to ensure that all students learn. So no longer is the purpose of the school to see to it that students are taught or to see to it that students have the chance to learn if they decide to take advantage of the opportunity. No longer is it the purpose of the school to sort and select students into the capable and less capable, who's the college bound and who are bound for um, blue collar jobs. 
the purpose of the school is to make sure that every student acquires the knowledge and the skills and the dispositions to be successful in the 21st century. Now, if you embrace that idea that the fundamental purpose of the school is to see to it that all kids learn, the second big idea is to acknowledge that it will take a collaborative and collective effort in order to see to it that that happens. So it's no longer one adult responsible for 25 students and closing the door and trying to solve all the problems himself or herself for those 25 students. It takes a collective and, and collaborative effort. And then the question becomes collaborate about what? Well, again, go back to the fundamental purpose of the school is to see to it that all kids learn. Any school that says that then must be prepared to answer the question, learn what? Um, what are the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that students are to acquire as a result of their experience in this school, as a result of their experience in this grade level or this course, and very importantly, as a result of their experience in this unit that we're about to teach. We must have a guaranteed curriculum for students so that it doesn't matter if you get Mrs. Jones or Mrs. Kilbride for third grade. Um, you will be, we guarantee, the school guarantees that you will be taught this skill. Now the only way that you can have that guarantee is if the teachers themselves are the ones making it. And so, in a professional learning community, one of the most important tasks of a collaborative team is to come together for each unit and agree upon uh, the answer to the question, why are we teaching this unit? What skills are essential for all of our students to acquire? Once a team has established that guaranteed curriculum unit by unit, the next vital work of the collaborative team is to answer the question, how will we know if they've learned? And so this is going to require um, increased attention to assessment literacy on the part of educators. They're going to have to get really good at that minute-by-minute minute checking for understanding as they're teaching in the classroom. But also, as a team, they're going to have to stop periodically and gather evidence of student learning. And they do that through common formative assessments. Um, the team uh, will say, at the end of this unit, we need to gather evidence to see which students are proficient, which students are still struggling, what are the, the best uh, ways that we can gather that evidence. And then as a team, they sit down together and they look at the evidence. And now we're really getting at the heart of the PLC process. It's when the collaborative team sits down together after they've agreed on what students should learn and after they've gathered evidence as to whether or not they've learned, the team has to ask four questions. The first one is, 
which students um, are still struggling with the skills that we have agreed are essential. Who needs intervention and how will we provide that intervention as a team and as a school? The second question that they have to look at is how will we enrich the learning for the students who have demonstrated they are already highly proficient? How can we extend and enrich their learning? The third question they have to ask as an individual teacher is what do these results tell me about my individual effectiveness? What skills or concepts do my students learn particularly well compared to the other students who are trying to learn that skill and concept? And what are the strategies that I use that I might be able to share with my colleagues? And lastly, um, uh, well, and conversely, I should say, and by the way, what are, what's an area where my students don't learn well and I need some help from my colleagues? And the final question that they would ask is, and where is an area where none of the students seem to do well, regardless of who the teacher is, this suggests that we need professional development, we need new ideas and new strategies for teaching the skills, where can we turn to get those? And very often the, the answer will be found there in the school. Perhaps there's another teacher in the school or another grade level that might have some really good ideas. Uh, often it's going to be outside of the school. Maybe there's someone else in the district who consistently gets good results, or there's central office support, a math coordinator, a language arts coordinator who could come in and enhance the work of that team. But, and very importantly, and I think this uh, interview illustrates it, we don't have to be bound by our school or by our district. We can seek help and create collaborative teams um, with people all around the world. And we're seeing more and more examples of virtual teams working together electronically and taking advantage of the technology to do the things that PLCs do. So proximity doesn't make you a team, but distance doesn't negate the possibility of teams. Um, when a school is really, truly functioning as a PLC, you see this intense focus on the learning of each student, uh, clarity about what they're to learn, hunger for evidence of whether or not they're learning, analysis of those evidence for very, very specific purposes. There's a real protocol to looking at the evidence of student learning. And finally, a systematic way of responding when kids don't learn. We don't leave it to chance. We don't leave it to what does that individual teacher do when kids don't learn. There has to be a timely, directed, and systematic response. So that's a very long answer, but that's, um, in, my, in our mind, that's what PLCs do. Vicki, there have been a couple of questions in the chat as Rick was talking, maybe about what practically happens when a student is falling behind. 
uh, Larry wondered if that actually brought the whole class down. Uh, how do you? How does a teacher in this uh, community address an underfunctioning student, and what are sort of the steps that typically get taken? Um, as Rick was saying, that that response, once a team agrees that there is a particular skill or concept within our content that all students must learn because it's essential, and they create the common formative assessment um, to measure whether or not each and every student has acquired that essential outcome after the first round of, uh, of instruction. Once they identify a student is struggling, the team and the school very specifically should have a plan in place for giving the students who initially struggled extra time and extra support. So in most instances, that does require a structural change, meaning the schedule has to align with what we're trying to accomplish. So at the elementary and middle school level, typically, there's a, a, a period a day by grade level where the team commits that during this instructional block, it might be 30 minutes long or 45 minutes long, during this particular instructional block across our grade level, no new direct instruction will take place so that we can differentiate instruction for our students based on the evidence we gather from our common formative assessment. While some kids may need more time and support from a particular teacher who got really great results teaching that particular skill or concept, other students will be working with other teachers on the team or other adults within the school building who can extend and enrich and provide maintenance and extra practice, all of that, again, depending on the learning needs based on the evidence. At the high school level, um, schedules are built typically period by period of the day so that while some students are engaging in new direct instruction and they're, for example, uh, math class or science class or fine arts class. Other students are having um, uh, periods of uh, tutoring, extra time, extra support, or extension and enrichment to stretch their learning to the next level. But a, a very important point in thinking about that response is one single teacher cannot make that happen. It has to be a collective response. And again, schedules have to be built. Uh, human resources have to be allocated so that um, teams of teachers are supported by the adults within the building. But every instructional adult has a responsibility within that system to either work to bring students to proficiency that initially struggled or to extend and enrich for students who don't struggle. I, I'd just like to add that um, I always ask these questions of the educators that we work with. And the first question that I ask is, do you feel that educators are sincere when they say they would like to help all of their students learn? 
you know, that's what virtually all of the mission statements say. Our, our school is to, is to help all students learn. Are we sincere when we say that? And um, overwhelmingly, educators tell me, yes, they sincerely would like to help all of their students learn, and I believe them. And then I ask the question, do you agree with that if all students are going to learn, that some students will probably require more time and support than others? Because there's never ever been a researcher who's concluded all students can learn without adding that caveat. But you know, some are going to take uh, more time and will need more support. Some students may learn this algebra concept in three weeks. Somebody else may need four. Somebody else uh, may need uh, 75 minutes a day instead of 50 minutes a day. So the third question then is, well, if we believe uh, that we're sincere when we say we want to help all students learn, and we recognize that if all students are to learn, some will need more time and support, have you created a schedule that gives you access to those students so that you can give them the time and support in ways that do not remove them from new direct instruction? And invariably, the answer is no. Yes, we believe that we want to help them learn, and we understand that if they're all going to learn, some will need more time and support, but we haven't created the structure and schedule to do it. And so I would point out the disconnect there. Um, there are schools on that evidence of effectiveness, uh, several hundred schools now, all of them have figured out ways in their schedule that they will require students to keep working and keep learning on a skill that they haven't yet learned without removing them from any new direct instruction in the classroom. And then they do it in a way that's timely and directive and most importantly systematic. It is the school that responds in a collective and systematic way when kids don't learn rather than leaving it up to individual classroom teachers to try to figure out on their own what they're supposed to do. Um, there are examples there of elementary schools, middle schools, junior high schools, high schools. You will see schools that have nine period days, eight period days, seven period days, six period days, five period days, block schedules. The schedules look different, but the one thing they all have in common is they have said, we will make sure there is some time during the school day when we can give the extra help to the kids who need it. And just to illustrate that this is not a North American phenomenon, uh, Sir Michael Barber did a, a study uh, in, um, for the McKinsey Group on what can we learn from the best school systems in the world. And one of the things that they learned was those systems take intervention very seriously. They drive it right down to the individual classroom. They, can, they know by name and by need. They know this student needs help with this. 
and they provide that help on a timely basis so students don't fall into a downward spiral. So we've had a number of questions in the chat that related to kind of following up on more information. Uh, the book that I uh, looked at, I can't say that I read it fully, but I read good portions of it, was Revisiting Professional Learning Communities at Work. Uh, it looks like it's a 10th anniversary edition. And I'm going to put a link in here in the chat for those who want to follow up. There are also two articles that were on my blog post, and I think Peggy and George posted that earlier. And Peggy, if you're willing to grab that again and post it in the chat, uh, they're good follow-up. Becky, in one of those articles, Rick writes a lot about um, something that surprised me but then made sense after I had read it, which was teacher pushback. We often hear that teachers feel isolated in their practice, but uh, it seems as though that may sometimes actually be an intentional choice. And how does it impact uh, the implementation of professional learning communities? So your mic may be off, or I said it asked a confusing question again. Oh, sorry, sorry, Steve. I just didn't uh, push the talk button. That always helps. Um, one of the foundational uh, understandings in the PLC at work process is that collaboration by invitation doesn't work. And so, yes, when we structure uh, our school into collaborative teams, it requires us to break down traditional walls of isolation. And many teachers have spent a number of years working in isolation and honestly have become very skillful at um, all of the challenges that happen in a classroom. And so it may be um, frightening or uncomfortable for teachers that have a long tenure of working in isolation to learn to work with their colleagues. But we do this for the benefit of all students. And so um, teachers that initially um, push back to the concept of working with their colleagues, we certainly recommend that the leadership of the school, the, the administrators, have dialogue with those teachers, maybe one-on-one -on -one or small group, to hear and seek to understand some of the concerns that they may have about the, the process. Uh, certainly to, to build shared knowledge on why are we doing this and what might it look like for us and to seek their input into structuring the collaborative team and collaborative culture of the building. But um, if, a, if allowing a teacher to opt out is an option in any school setting, then that means the number of students served by that teacher will never benefit from the PLC process. And we think the process is, is too important to uh, leave some students out of the benefit. Thank you. Um, so this interview series started as a look at the role of technology in education. And I think um, Web 2.0 and the internet are bringing, this, bringing new conversations to a lot of educators. And so in addition to the term professional learning communities, we hear about personal learning communities, 
We hear about communities of practice. Rick, earlier you alluded a little bit to the difference, but could you kind of clarify for us the difference between um, your PLC and, and the other forms of electronic communities that are being created? Yeah, I think that the main difference is that in a different, the school is functioning as a professional learning community. Everything about that school in terms of its structure and culture is reinforcing collaboration among the members of the staff right there in the building. And there are certain um, protocols and uh, tasks that the teams work on together. And um, while people on each team are empowered to make very important decisions, they can't opt out of some of the processes. They can't say, well, we've decided we don't want to create a guaranteed curriculum or we don't want to create common assessments or we don't, we don't mind giving the assessments, it's just that we don't want to analyze the data. So it is a little more formalized and prescriptive um, as opposed to uh, communities of practice where, uh, or electronic communities where people just attempt to connect with other like-minded souls who are facing some of the same challenges. It is more um, self-initiated. It's more optional. And the agenda um, or the topics of conversation can flow uh, wherever the interest of the group kind of kind of leads. So I would say that would be, uh, you know, my interpretation of uh, the differences. Uh, but I do want to reiterate that I think that having, uh, for example, a team of uh, grade nine English teachers work together face to face in a building um, could be paralleled electronically with a French one teacher who's the only French teacher in the building who could connect with other French teachers to form a real professional learning community and do the exact same things that that English team would do to clarify what kids should know, to develop tools for assessing their learning and sharing the results back and forth and helping each other get better at this wonderful craft of teaching. So um, I, I feel that technology is a great way to bring um, to expand the PLC process, to address the needs of the singleton teacher, and to help uh, schools go beyond their um, the, the capacity that they have within the building. You know, if they're really struggling and nobody in the building seems to know the answer, um, then it seems to me that technology could certainly uh, help uh, provide that answer. I, I think it would be, for example, now that we're coming up with the new um, core, common core curriculum in the United States where 
There are non-nationally recommended curriculum standards that the states are free to adopt or not adopt, but they've um, recommended them for English and math. In a, in a perfect world, or a better world at least, it would seem to me that the third grade team that was getting ready to teach a math concept could go to um, a video site where they could observe a master math teacher teaching that concept and using different strategies. They, they would be able to download materials, they'd be able to download questions that they might integrate into their assessments. Uh, so technology is going to, in my mind, be a real catalyst for expanding expertise beyond the limits of the walls of the building. What I've heard in your answer is also that a professional learning community, a school as a professional learning community, is addressing the specific practical aspects of their students and making plans for improvement. Whereas what you might do in a community of practice online or a social network for educators would be sort of gathering practices and ideas which then could be brought to that uh, school community. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. So Bob Compton is a uh, successful businessman who's produced some films on education, and this most recent one was with Tony Wagner of Harvard, and it's called The Finland Phenomenon. And I saw so many parallels between what was described in that movie and your work. In the interview with him, Bob said that uh, there was this sense that it was going to take a long time to change Finland's educational culture. Um, in, in their case, they feel it was about a 25-year process. And I'm wondering if the two of you have thoughts about where we are in terms of that kind of a change process in the United States. Uh, and uh, are we even on the path yet? And if we're not, what kinds of cultural um, what has to happen culturally for us to align behind these ideas or a set of ideas to actually get to a concerted change process? I think there's uh, it's a good news, bad news answer to your question. Uh, the good news is that I think there uh, is far um, more consensus around the idea that this is the best way to improve schools among educators themselves. And so we're, we're finding that the questions that the educators are raising are no longer why should we do this or we don't want to do this. Now the questions are give us the tools and the strategies for being successful in doing it. So I think we've made great progress in terms of uh, convincing educators it's the right thing to do. It's still very difficult to do, and the bad news is that there doesn't seem to be, in the United States anyway, uh, any governmental 
um, support for capacity building as opposed to uh, using sanctions, punishments, uh, rewards, incentives uh, as a way to try and improve schooling. If you look, for example, at legislation in the United States, they've done a number of things to try and increase competitive pressure on public schools like voucher programs and charter schools. They've made it uh, easier to fire teachers. They're taking away collective bargaining rights of teachers in many states. They're uh, making it easier to replace educators with people who have no experience in education. They've set up a, a system uh, to punish schools that don't meet certain targets. And by 2014, every school in the United States will be a failing school. They provided financial incentives for the, uh, you know, a few teachers who do actually get good results. Uh, well, we want to reward the, those few individuals through some form of merit pay. The, uh, the average teacher's salary in the United States last year was $42,000. And apparently the assumption is people won't work hard if they're guaranteed 42000 But if they have a one in five chance to make $47,000, they are really going to knock themselves out. But if you think about it, virtually all of those things are things that are attempts to coerce people into improvement. So apparently the assumption is they haven't been interested in improving. And there's no uh, real effort to build capacity. And furthermore, many of those strategies are um, contrary to the kinds of practices that schools should be implementing. If, if uh, I can earn a financial incentive for hoarding my good teaching strategies and making sure my students look good, but not sharing any of that with any of my colleagues, it would be to my disadvantage to actually share my good teaching or assume collective responsibility for the learning of a student who wasn't assigned to me in my classroom. So uh, culturally, I think educators are ahead of the curve. We've made, we're beginning to make the changes, but I don't see any political um, impetus uh, to change the, a culture that still seems to feel that the way you're going to improve schools is by punishing teachers and educators uh, until they improve. Um, and that, I, I find, is the very discouraging notion of what's going on, at least in this country. Becky, what role do parents play in this process? That was probably the most interesting section of the book for me in the professional learning communities at work. Um, do parents understand the changes that need to take place, and in what ways are they supported, and in what ways aren't they? Yeah, again, that's a really great question, and the, the chapter that was devoted to that in the revisiting um, was based on, again, looking at multiple levels of schooling, elementary, middle, and high. 
looking at the research on what we know to be effective regarding parent partnerships and then trying to um, uh, provide multiple real-world examples of what that looks like. So um, one thing that we know about strong parent partnerships and improving in high-performing schools is that um, parents understand and schools understand from the parent perspective what students need in order to be successful. So a great deal of effort is put into two-way communication systems uh, through the use of technology, uh, blogs, wikis, emails. Uh, parents are in many schools given a, a PIN number so that they can access a teacher's grade book uh, night by night to ensure that their student is keeping up with assignments and performing at good levels and um, contacting teachers if there is a concern. But we know that um, when parents are provided with the information about what does the learning look like, what will be expected of your student, when will, be, when will it be expected, what will the school do to ensure that students are given extra time and extra support if they're struggling? Uh, parents embrace the PLC process. It uh, takes the burden off of parents who've had students placed in traditional school settings. Uh, when a student struggles, typically it's on the parent to decide, uh, will I bring my students early or have them stay late for extra time and support? Do I need to hire a tutor to give my student extra support? In the learning community process, when Rick talked about the systematic uh, responsive intervention being directive, Basically all that means is the educators within the building during the school day work together in ways we've never worked before to guarantee students who need it to come up to proficiency, receive extra time and support, and that students who are already proficient continue to be stretched and challenged and enriched so that their learning can go to the next level. When parents understand the reason uh, for the cultural and structural changes that take place, um, in our experience, parents um, embrace it. They don't object to it. And, um, you know, parents want all schools to, to function that way. So we're going to shift the Q&A now. Uh, we've got about Ten minutes left. If you have a question for Rick or Becky, uh, feel free to put it in the chat. You can also raise your hand and take the microphone if you're comfortable with that. That's the hand icon that's in the top of the participant box. I've captured some of the questions and I'll start with those and then we'll add them as they go along. So early in the conversation, uh, Rick, uh, Maureen asked, uh, I have uh, one question I have is how a small school where there's one teacher grade subject can be more successful in this process. I have a lot of connections outside my school, but I really want to bring this PLC home. And that's a great question, Maureen. As a matter of fact, it's been one of the more popular topics on uh, 
the All Things PLC blog. There have been a number of people who have uh, raised that very question, and then educators from all around the United States have given their answers in terms of how they're uh, providing it. Um, in brief, uh, one way is that they establish vertical teams. So there's one kindergarten teacher, one first grade, one second grade. Uh, those three people work together as one primary team that agrees on what students are to learn at each grade level, kindergarten, first, second grade. All three of them work together in terms of the most effective strategies for gathering evidence of student learning. And when one of them is looking at the results, let's say it's the first grade teacher, she's looking at the results. She's got two critical friends looking at those same results with her. And the three of them try to figure out what can we do to better meet the needs of our students. Their intervention uh, may even uh, overlap in uh, uh, different ways where that second grade teacher might come in and work with the first grade teacher for a time, or first grade students who are struggling in a particular skill, while the first grade teacher goes up and does something with the second grade kids. So vertical teams is one uh, really good way to go about doing that. But the other, as I mentioned, is the electronic team. Um, if you're the only art teacher in your building. There are other schools where there's only one art teacher. And could you uh, connect with those colleagues and agree to actually begin functioning as a collaborative team in a PLC? Which means, again, that you would have to come to agreement on what is it we want students to learn in, let's say, uh, elementary art or middle school art, and how will we know and how can we gather evidence of whether or not they're learning it. Um, in many instances, that evidence gathering is going to be performance based. So for example, uh, teachers might take samples of the projects that their art students have created, digitize them, and then uh, share them with other art teachers and, have, and get feedback on uh, how are these students doing. That any performance-based assessment is going to require the members of the team to uh, agree on two things. The criteria by which they'll judge the quality of student work. So can we agree on what a superior project looks like versus uh, a good one, a fair one, a poor one, or a great persuasive essay versus a good, fair, poor one. And then, can we establish iterator reliability? Can we actually apply our own criteria to examples of student work and establish that we are giving students consistent feedback? If you could do that with another teacher, uh, even electronically, uh, you're a member of, uh, of a collaborative team in a professional learning community. So we're going to go slightly out of order here because Sarah McFarland from Sacramento 
um, is asking about a, an actual virtual school implementing this. I think in many ways, Rick, you may have actually, you may have answered this to some degree, but are there other specific pieces of advice you'd give a virtual school in adopting a professional learning community approach? Uh, as, as a matter of fact, one of our um, colleagues and professional learning communities associates, she is on our team, she um, uh, consults with schools and districts, is currently a, a, a principal of a virtual school. And um, she has written a recent blog on the All Things PLC website highlighting a few of the things that happened through that virtual school um, process. And uh, so her name is Regina Owens, O-W-E-N-S. You'll find the article if you do a site search on All Things PLC. And she would be a tremendous contact for anyone uh, looking for ideas of how this might play out virtually. Um, they have students all across the world um, that attend their virtual school, and but their teachers function in high-performing collaborative teams using the technology to support that collaboration. Okay, a specific question that you received in the chat was, uh, are you familiar with the eight-step process from Pat Davenport? Since that's being mentioned quite a bit in Indiana. I don't know that process. Do, do either of you? Um, I'm familiar with it only to the extent that I know uh, Pat's chart and uh, his instructional model. Um, and I would say that it is, uh, again, very consistent with what we're advocating here. And I would go on to say that I think Almost anyone who's out there now working with schools um, to apply what we know to be the most promising practices will keep coming back to the kinds of things that we've talked about. It's going to be that plan, do, check, act cycle that uh, you know, you're familiar with in, in uh, uh, quality circles. It's going to be that um, uh, clarity of purpose of gathering evidence of uh, establishing um, hypotheses based on the evidence, working uh, engaging in action research to try and um, uh, address some of the concerns that you might have regarding student learning. Um, so I. I I wouldn't get too hung up on whether it's um, his eight steps or uh, whether it's uh, total quality management or whether it's PLCs. I would simply say this to you. Um, whatever you call it, it should be reflective of what we know to be the best strategies for improving student learning. And they might be packaged a little differently, or they might be used different nomenclature. 
But there really is now a good understanding of those best practices and uh, whatever heading you put it on uh, or, or under uh, is of very little consequence to us. Uh, we don't care if you call it PLCs. We don't make you learn the PLC hand, secret handshake or sign a PLC pledge. We just ask you to act in ways that uh, reflect the most promising strategies for student learning. Becky, one of the uh, questions in the chat was, have you seen any PLC-type schools that are breaking down traditional grade-level structures? Um, certainly, there are a lot of different um, configurations of grade levels. Uh, we, um, you know, many of the schools uh, with which we work have multi-grade uh, settings, uh, either by uh, choice or because they uh, are required to, based on the numbers of students their school serves. So we've seen. Um, uh, Different examples, as Rick mentioned, some vertical structures where um, a K-1-2 team, for example, will take collective responsibility for all the students. Um, teachers on teams that uh, work in interdisciplinary settings. So we would contend there's really no one right structure. And it doesn't have to be straight grades like we traditionally served in our um, school setting. What's most important is that the teachers who serve a group of students, whether it's across a grade level or vertically, will commit to creating that guaranteed curriculum that is the foundation uh, for which all students must be successful and frequently monitoring that student learning and responding with enrichment or intervention um, when students struggle or are ready for the next step. So that process can be delivered in many different structural settings. What we don't advocate, and we know that the research uh, supports that this is not a good process, is to um, homogeneously group students uh, with one teacher and, and uh, keep those students in that single classroom with one teacher responsible for the learning of all the students. It has to be a collective, collaborative response based on what we know to be best practice. So I think that's a terrific place to stop. I uh, really appreciate both of you coming on the show. Because it's an hour, which is quite a long period of time, as a courtesy to you, we really try and end on time. Um, uh, Rick or Becky, any final comments? The um, other piece of good news about the PLC process is uh, Michael Fullen, one of Canada's leading researchers who's worked with schools around the world in implementing the PLC process has said that um, we now have such a more clear understanding of the specific work that needs to be done in transforming a traditional school into a PLC that we now understand much more clearly what the teams must do in order to really function as high-performing collaborative teams 
that the process of transformation from traditional schools to PLCs has been accelerated dramatically. And he's arguing that even in a large school, uh, within a single year, the uh, transformation can take place and the culture can be permanently uh, impacted. So we think um, there is good news. Uh, we know what we need to do. And there's greater um, willingness on the part of educators to do it. And we're getting better at uh, quicker implementation. So we continue to hope that someday um, the schools that are not functioning as PLCs will be the rare exception. Steve, I would just like to add that um, it's been a, a great pleasure to engage in this dialogue. And I see many of the questions in the chat that uh, we would have loved to have answered had there been more time. And just encourage the folks to take advantage of the All Things PLC website once again. Many of the questions you've raised in writing today are, have already been asked and answered in many ways on, the, on that blog. And if not, we'd be happy to do so. So post your questions on the blog, and uh, either Rick or I or one of our dear colleagues will be happy to respond. Thank you. I've used the applause emoticon. Uh, to the, in the participant window on the left, where you see the smiley face. If you hover over that, you'll see an applause emoticon. Um, thank you, Rick and Vicki. That was really delightful. Most appreciated. Coming up on the future of education, um, Howard Gardner on September 13th. We have a little bit of a break this coming week. Thanks, Rick and Vicki. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Take care. Thank you, Stephen. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.